Welcome to Forest North, a podcast from the Superior National Forest. I'm your host, Brett Ross. Join me as we hear from some folks who live, work, and recreate on our national forest lands here in northeastern Minnesota. This episode, we'll hear from Maggie Whiting, Visitor Services Information Assistant with the Kawishui Ranger District in Ely. Maggie gives a complete run-through on Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Trip Planning and how to get your permit when they go live on Wednesday, January 31st. Steve Robertson returns. We talk about some effects of the lack of early season snow, some ways to enjoy the winter conditions now that they're here, and what some of the winged creatures are up to here in January in the North Woods. Forest North is created by the Ely Tourism Bureau in partnership with the USDA Forest Service, Superior National Forest. Find out more about the Superior National Forest at fs.usda.gov superior. Be sure to subscribe, share, and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening through and email your questions or comments to tourism at ely.org. I'm Brett Ross. Welcome to Forest North. Maggie Whiting is the Visitor Services Information Assistant with the Kawishui Ranger District on the Superior National Forest. Hello, Maggie. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for being here. It's exciting to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. We are in our second episode of Forest North, and uh, I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, before we jump into the the real meat of our conversation, if you wouldn't mind giving people a little bit of a background about yourself. Certainly. Um, well, I come to the Forest Service in 2006. Um, my dad was um, stationed at the Isabella Ranger Station for over 30 years, and so I grew up with the Forest Service and in the Boundary Waters all my life, um, just loving every minute of it, my own personal Disney World, I suppose. And, um, of course, I love doing what I do and helping people to enjoy the Boundary Waters and the Wilderness Area and the Superior National Forest. I'm just really loving every moment of it. Well, that's fantastic. It sounds like you are in the perfect job. It is the perfect job. I meet so many people and learn so many things, and I just help everyone that I can to learn um, about the Boundary Waters and the forest and um, how they can be a better steward. And so that is sort of the the crux of your job as a visitor services information assistant is basically acquainting people with what happens in the yeah. National Forest. Yes, it is. Um, we talk about the Boundary Waters. We talk about the forest. We talk about camping. We talk about hiking. Um, there's so many questions and so many answers that have to go out to make their visit comfortable and um, so that they know the rules and they know what to do. It's not like any other place that you go in the world. Right. There's many things that people just don't know, and it's wonderful to share with them. Um, I love every moment of it. Excellent. So if someone is just stumbling onto this podcast and they're not familiar with the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, could you give a little bit of insight as to what what is the Boundary Waters? Well, the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is set apart And to go into the Boundary Waters Wilderness, you need a permit. 
And so doing that is sometimes a big adventure for people and so unknown. And there's many ways to learn about it. Um, so you can go to recreation.gov, and there's a start point where you can go in and just as soon as you put in Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, it's going to bring you to the permit section. Mm -hmm. And there is a section there that says, walk me through. Okay. You can actually go through that step by step, and it will ask you, do you want to motor? Do you want to hike? Do you want to paddle? So each thing that you want to do, it's going to ask you step by step. If you don't want to go to the Boundary Waters uh, Canoe Area Wilderness section or you don't feel comfortable going to recreation.gov and asking those questions, you can call us at the ranger station or any station that's close to your entry point. You can also call recreation.gov at 1-877-444-6777. And we will walk you through the process. So people can call and talk to an actual human being. Yes, I get that a lot. (laughs) Where people say, are you real? (laughs) You are real. Yes, we will. I just finished today 20 minutes with a person who had never gotten a permit before, didn't know how, and I walked them through the process. And so there are are different types of permits. You mentioned there's motor permits, there's canoeing permits, there's just hiking permits. Um, talk yeah. about what what sets the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness apart from the rest of the Superior National Forest land and just the rest of, of public land in the United States in general. Well, in the forest, the the rules and regulations are not as concise as they are with the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. We have a trip planning guide on our website and on recreation.gov. We also have a uh, what to know before you go. And these compile all the rules and regulations that you must comply with to be able to go out into the Boundary Waters. It also helps you to have a better trip. So knowing those rules and regulations before you even decide, do you really want to go into the wilderness? There's many rules and regulations, and you have to be comfortable with them. So once you decide that, then you can go through the process of going into recreation.gov and getting a permit. So... It's the rules and regulations for the Boundary Waters that sets it apart. And so, for example, obviously the fact that you need a permit puts a limit on the number of people that can actually travel into the Boundary Waters or go in through a particular entry point on any given day. Exactly. There's quotas set for each entry point. And um, those are the ones like where we are going to go go live soon on... Mm -hmm. um, January 31st at 9 a.m. Central Time. So before you decide what you're going to do and you want to go to the Boundary Waters, you have to make sure that you have all the rules and regulations in your mind and know what you have to do, what you what you can't do, and decide, do you really honestly want to go into the wilderness or do you want to just explore in the forest? We have... 
254 backcountry sites that you can go to without a permit, without a reservation. Um, There's campgrounds also. So there's a lot of options. And the wilderness sets it apart. And it is, there's a quota system, and you do have to reserve a permit for that. So as far as the the more restrictive regulations in the wilderness, can you give sort of an overview of what what are some of those restrictions that that set the wilderness apart from the rest of the Superior National Forest? Okay, to go in, you cannot bring any cans or bottles, okay. anything into the boundary waters. Everything has to be in returnable plastic containers. Okay. So there's there's those things. You can um, as you go out into the boundary waters, there's no reservable campsites. So you have to plan ahead and know how you can paddle. So once you go out, you go until you find a site that is open. Mm-hmm. So there's no reservable. Um, there are only, you can only bring in a permit for watercraft, mm-hmm. um, there can only be nine people for watercraft. Um, you must have a fire in the campfire grate itself. Mm-hmm. That fire must be out, cold to the touch, before you go to sleep, go fishing. The only thing you can burn in that fire is wood, and the wood that is dead and down. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't cut down anything, chop down anything, take... Uh, the birch bark off the trees, there's specific rules set for that. Um, you don't bathe in the water. You, there's no soap allowed, not grandma's soap, soap you make, soap that's camp soap, no soap in the water at all. Why? Of course, because you're going to drink out of that water. Right. So there are a whole sets of rules, and those are all listed in the trip planning guide and what to know before you go and on our website. Or you can call us at the Forest Service, any one of the district office, and we can rattle those rules off to you. Those rules are also listed on your permit on the back And you sign off to know that those rules you have read and you understand. Um, There's also a three-part video that you're going to watch. You're going to get the first two parts when your permit is is already reserved. And then when you come to pick up your permit, whether you're going to pick it up from a cooperator or from the Forest Service, you're going to watch that third video. And then we're going to go through the rules and regs with you once more time or just ask if you have any questions. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about a cooperator, those are outfitters? Those are outfitters that issue our permits, and they are all listed on the back of the trip planning guide, and also they're listed when you go in to reserve your permit. Mm-hmm. And you're going to want to pick one of those outfitters that is closest to your entry point as possible. So the the specific regulations about the wilderness um, make it so that it's not something it's not something to take lightly when you're going on a trip into the boundary waters you really have to do a lot of planning you have to really be prepared you have to be very aware of of what you bring 
into the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness with you. You you definitely do because everything that you pack in, you need to pack out. Right. So another one of the rules is so your food, so you're going to cook your food. And if you drop your macaroni on the ground and it's full of dirt, what are you going to do with it? Right. You cannot put it in the latrine. You cannot throw it in the lake. You cannot bury it on the land. You're going to have to take that and put it in a plastic bag, zip it up, and you're going to bring it back. So there's a lot to think about what you're going to do. Also, how are you going to keep your food safe? Mm -hmm. How are you going to, are you going to hang your food? Are you going to put it in a bear barrel? What are you going to do? There's certain things that we suggest and we help you go through depending on where you're going to go and what you're going to do and how long you're going to be out. So those are all things to consider. Yeah, you really can't underestimate how important meal planning is for those trips. First of all, making sure that you have enough food to eat while you're out there, but also what you're going to do with that food when you're in your campsite to keep it away from bears. And as you mentioned, if you drop some food on the ground, you don't want to leave it there. You don't want to put food in your campfire. You definitely don't want to have it in your tent with you because it's just going to attract bears. And uh, what we see in a lot of areas where people do that, where people leave food and things behind in campsites, it habituates the bears and the bears will keep coming back to those campsites. Yeah. The bears are interested in food and they can smell food a mile away. So literally (laughs) a mile away. And food is kind of a misnomer because chapstick toothpaste, gum, sunflower seeds, bears, one of favorite foods, (laughs) um, grapes, um, candies, any of those things. So what snacks are you going to bring in the tent? None. None. Nothing. Not chapstick, not anything. Everything is going to be put away before you go to sleep at night. Those are all things that people don't think about because why would you? You don't have to unless you're out in the wilderness in that situation. It's it's extremely important. Sure. And so a big advantage of having the permit system and having all the resources around that permit system can help ensure that people have all the pertinent information before they start to plan a trip, before they actually head into the wilderness. Exactly. And and you have to decide, I mean, you should have at least three choices of where you want to go. You may not get your first choice. You should have at least three of those. And so before you even decide, you have to look, where do you think you want to go? Pick three or four different places um, so that you're not disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um And if you don't get them, if you don't get any of them, we can work with you and help you pick another choice or have you go in on another entry point to get you to the same place. You don't always have to go from your favorite entry point. You can always go from another entry point and work your way towards your Mm -hmm. favorite point. So there's a lot that helps when you call your district office that's closest and we can help you with that. And it's, of course, important to mention that 
it's not just a free-for-all as far as camping goes. You can't just go to a place where this looks like a nice flat spot to pitch a tent. You have to be in a designated campsite uh, with a latrine, with a fire, fire grate. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And on the maps, you will see little red dots. Those mm-hmm. little red dots are going to tell you that, yes, that is where you can camp. You can't camp in another spot in the Boundary Waters except that has fire grate and a latrine. And don't take for granted that because, you know, one lake's paddle from your entry point, there's a campsite and that's the campsite that you want to get. There's a good chance that someone's already going to be at that campsite. So you have to be you have to know where the other campsites are and you have to be willing to to keep paddling and find that next campsite. First come, first serve. Right. That's true. And you want to start earlier in the day mm-hmm. as early as you can. Um, leaving at two or three o'clock in the afternoon can be sad. Right. You have to paddle a lot further than you would think you would. It's getting dusk. Um, the whole process of that is planning ahead and preparing so that your trip is successful and you are happy and you do want to do that again. And setting up camp at a site you've never been to before in the woods in the dark. It's not a lot of fun. It is not fun at all. No, it is not. And it could rain or it could be windy or so many things. So we do suggest that you start as early as you possibly can. And so you bring up some other points too. uh, uh, weather, Um, things like wind can really alter your plans. If you are planning on, you know, having a day's worth of travel to get to your destination or to get uh, back out through an entry point, um, wind can really disrupt that. So being prepared for those eventualities of not being able to be on the water when the wind is really high. It is true because your permit is for that day. You must go in that day. Mm -hmm. So you want to prepare and you want to watch the weather and you want to know what's going because you have to go. It's like a plane, a train, a bus, or you're going to go that day. Mm -hmm. That is the day you can go. If you don't go that day, then your permit is not valid. You would have to get another permit to go the next day. So Mm -hmm. it's not something that you can put off. And so planning ahead and preparing, again, is just one of the most things that you can do to make your trip successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and as with any wilderness adventure, um, the best way to ensure, uh, a fun trip and a successful trip is to plan properly. Plan ahead and prepare. Um, and we tell people, I think it's just really important to do once you've decided and you've picked one and and you're going to go and you're going to get your permit. Um, we see people that have not picked an alternate mm-hmm. when they're going to make their permit. Um, it's imperative that you pick, you can pick up to three alternates that can pick up your permit. Okay. If you can't go, if your tires get flat, if you have car trouble, a, a many different things so that you can still go then if there's another person that's able to pick up your permit. So if someone, if you don't have someone else in your group that's named as an alternate, if you're not there yourself to you actually pick it up, nobody goes. Nobody goes. No. And it's, it's very important because things do happen. Life gets in the way right. and those things happen. So um, having someone else to be able to pick it up and then that person finally gets there, it's fine. They've gone through the rules and regs. They've listened to all the 
things that have come up. If there's weather that's coming up, we're going to tell them. If there's fire danger, we're going to tell them. If there's bear issues around where we're going, where they're going, we're going to tell them. And the person that didn't make it, those people that were there and listened to the rules and regulations are signing the permit because they were an alternate and they can give those rules and regulations and get that person caught up and the trip is successful and they get to go. If that doesn't happen, you don't get to go. Right. Right. And also, you know, with uh, so much technology, with technology being so ubiquitous in our lives now, um, it's easy to take for granted that you can pull out your phone and look at Google Maps and say, this is where I am. I know where I am right now. In the wilderness, that's not always the case. In fact, it's rarely the case with a lot of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness that you would even have cell coverage. Yeah. Cell coverage is dubious at most. Yeah. Um, you need a map and a compass. Mm-hmm. You do. And and to know and, how to use and them properly. And, and know how to use it. Um, I've been in the wilderness all my life. I've been on almost every lake in the Boundary Waters. And you can get turned around with wind, with rain, with sleet. You never know what it's going to do. Um, you must have a map and a compass and know how to use it. It's it's imperative. Yeah. I You know, my, my first solo trip into the Boundary Waters, I had... St- all of those things. <laughs> I had, I had wind, I had rain. Um, I had a map that I thought I knew I, that I was reading it correctly. And I thought I knew where the portage was and I paddled right on past the portage and, and after, and I kept looking for the portage and I couldn't find it. And then the wind picked up and a storm rolled in. And luckily I was able to find a campsite where I was able to just, just pull in there, pull my canoe out of the water and sit under my tarp for an hour and a half until the rain cleared up. And I just remember thinking, boy, I, I really screwed up, <laughs> you know? Um, but also, I, I had, had studied the rules and regulations. I had prepared as best as I could. I had the right gear and I knew to get off of the water when there was weather coming through. And then after the storm cleared, I, I had plenty of time to look over my map and go, okay, I see likely where I pass by the portage. The storm cleared and the water was like glass. The sun came out and it was gorgeous. I paddled back to the portage and the rest of my trip was fantastic. And an important thing to remember, I think in a situation like that is don't panic. And I think the best way to not panic when you are in a situation like that is to be prepared, to know that you have the right gear, to know all of your contingencies for for weather and and possibly being lost or have getting turned around again just just proper planning it's, can make all it, the difference in the world it's so important and you have to know where you are in the world and be able to set yourself where you are so you know where you're going and yes we tell people i mean it might be 80 when they go out um but you have to prepare for the weather. It can get colder. It can rain. The bugs can be a definite issue. You oh, know yeah. that. I mean, bring a head net, bring bug spray, bring a, a, a 
first aid kit. Make sure you're prepared for everything because there's no local store. There's no little place that you're going to go to pick something up that you forgot. And so there's a checklist on our on our trip planning guide. It tells you what to bring. It tells you what is important. And they all are important because you never know what's going to happen. You just don't know. So being prepared for every possible scenario makes your trip a whole lot easier. And um, it's probably the most important point is to be prepared for everything so that you're loving your trip and wanting to come back. Right. And so one of the big designations about the wilderness area is the restriction on motors. Um, And of course, people associate motors with, you know, your 50 horse Johnson on the back of your boat or whatever it is. Um, but I think there's a lot of things that people don't realize are considered, uh, mechanical, um, like a sail on your boat or, uh, this time of year when the lakes are frozen, I have a fat tire bike. Mm-hmm. You can't ride a fat tire no. bike in the boundary waters. No. And there's certain kayaks that have paddles on them and rudders and you can't use those also. Again, Get the trip planning guide. Make sure you look at that. And if you have any question about what you're going to bring, again, you can call any one of the district offices. And I also have um, the permit manager. And um, this person is in the Duluth supervisor's office. And I'm going to give you her number. Um, She will go through every possible scenario with you if you decide you want to bring, can I bring my battery-operated toothbrush? Right. And you're just wondering if maybe that's true. You can call us at the ranger station also, but you can call the permit manager, and you might want to write this down. It's 218-626-4314. So any one of those questions, and we get all kinds of them, Um It's good to ask before you bring. People ask us all the time when they come in if they can bring this or that, or is it okay if they bring um, a foil wrapper of tuna Mm -hmm. other than a can? If there's a can of tuna, no, you cannot. Can you bring the tuna in the foil wrapper? Yes, you can, but that foil wrapper must be brought back. So it's nuances as little as that. And our wilderness rangers who are doing an amazing job, are going to be out there helping you. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to remind you if they stop and they see that or you're trying to burn that piece of foil or whatever. You can't in the state of Minnesota. You can't burn rubbish. Mm-hmm. So anything in that fire grate that's like that is a no-no. But they're going to remind you about that mm-hmm. and help you remember because people forget. It's just different out there. And so those are all things to remember. There's a lot of questions. Yeah. And so just one other one other point that I wanted to bring up. I know uh, I'm a photographer myself. Uh, people love to photograph in the Boundary Waters. There's some beautiful opportunities for landscape photos, for wildlife photos. Uh, I was watching a video uh, just a couple of weeks ago of some folks that had been out on a winter camping trip. And some of the footage that they had looked distinctly like it was filmed from a drone. 
And there's pretty specific rules about drones. In Very the specific. Waters. So you cannot have drones in the Boundary Waters. And if you are doing a commercial filming, you have to get a permit for right. that. And again, you can call your local district office and we're going to help you with that. Mm-hmm. That person will go through that with you and um, perhaps make that happen. But there's rules and regulations for that also. So there are special use permits that you can do that with. But generally, can you take pictures of birds and the kids at the fire and fishing? Yes, of course you can. But anything that's commercial out there would need a special use permit. And our special use specialists um, can definitely help you with that. Excellent. So many great resources. And so the big day is coming up soon. It's January 31st. That's when the permits go live at recreation.gov. What all does that entail? Do you know, the first thing that you need to do is to make sure that on recreation.gov, you've made yourself a profile. Okay. Make sure that's all set. And you can do that right now. You can do that right now. You can do that anytime. Make sure your name, your full address, your phone number, your email, or if you have an old account and you've changed your email or you've changed your phone or you've changed your address, call them at 1-877-444-6777 and get that profile right your credit card information, just like any place else that you would order something, Mm -hmm. make sure you've got that correct. Mm -hmm. That's extremely important in recreation.gov. And make sure that's done before 9 a.m. Way before 9 (laughs) a.m. And so get into recreation.gov that morning, Make sure that at 9 a.m. you've refreshed your page Mm -hmm. and then go in and you can explore available permits. Um, And another thing that's that you must do is you must use Chrome. Oh, okay, Google Chrome for your browser. Use Google Chrome. Anything else will let you get to the end. And then it won't work. Oh, that's got to be frustrating. It's it's frustrating. And some people, you will see on recreation.gov, there is an app. Okay. And you can put the app on your phone, but do not use that app for Boundary Waters permits. Okay. It does not work for permits. You can use it for campgrounds, but don't use that app. Right. And so come nine o'clock on January 31st, um, like you mentioned, it's a first come first serve basis. So anyone that's looking at permits for the Boundary Waters for the upcoming season is going to be on the site. There are a lot of people that are on there right away. Mm -hmm. And again, make sure you've got everything set for your profile. Make sure you've got your choices, three or four choices that you want to go So if you don't get your first choice, you get your second or third Mm -hmm. choice. Um, Make sure that that's all set. Go in and do what you can as best you can. If you don't get what you want, again, life gets in the way. Mm -hmm. And after the first week or so, you can go back in and what you have seen at 10 o'clock 
on the 31st or 11 is going to be different because mm-hmm. people are going to put things back in. They pick the wrong one. They pick two of the same. And if you have two or three of the same on the same day with the same leader, we're going to take two of those away. Mm-hmm. So you can't overlap permits okay. like that. Okay. So, and that happens because you're excited and right. you know, you may, you may do that. You may, have more than one on the same day with the same leader. You can't do that. So coming back and checking recreation.gov to see what has changed since the very beginning and your favorite entry point is gone. You can also call us and we can help you with that and go through it and look for you. Um, And we can also suggest that you might want to take another entry point and, again, come through the back way to the point that you wanted to go to Mm -hmm. to begin with. And if there's no place that that you've picked and you can't get any of them, we'll help you find a place. It Mm -hmm. might not be in the Boundary Waters Mm -hmm. or it might be a completely different place in the Boundary Waters, but we'll work with you Mm -hmm. and um, make your trip just as successful. Yeah. And so when, you know, when you mentioned that, that it it may not be in the Boundary Waters, considering that we have close to 4 million acres of forest on the Superior National Forest, um, you're not specifically limited to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. There are a number of, as you mentioned, backcountry sites, campgrounds. There are a lot of opportunities for recreation outside of the Boundary Waters, but still on the National Forest and still very much the same uh, terrain, the same landscapes, um, equally good fishing, wildlife viewing, um, all of those things. There, uh, If you don't get your top choices uh, on, on Go Live Day... That doesn't mean that you can't be in the forest. The the choices are enormous. And if you were blindfolded and brought to some of these other places, you would think you were in the Boundary Waters. You wouldn't know. There There is really no way to tell sometimes. So we've had a lot of success with helping people find other places, um, And they come back and go and want to explore a little more. I mean, going to the same place is wonderful. And some people have where they've gone to the same spot for the last 30 years. And perhaps they didn't get this last year and they couldn't go there. And we found other places, given them a chance. They went, they loved it. It was perfect. Um, Give yourself some slack. Mm -hmm. Pick some other places and see what's out there. Um, It's all wonderful. It's like a box of chocolates. They're all good. (laughs) Right, right. So important things to keep in mind. Once again, just be prepared. Make sure that your uh, rec.gov profile is all up to date. Make sure all of your information is is accurate and correct before the permits go live. Um, Have alternate choices for entry points. Have your alternates for picking up the permit. Know who's going to go with you. Just really be prepared and then don't lose heart if you don't get your choices on that day. Be willing to check back later on or be willing to explore some areas you haven't explored before. Exactly. And we will help you. Any one of the district offices, they all have wonderful people that are there. That's our job is to help you. If you don't get what you want, we will help you find something else. 
And that's fantastic. We've all had experiences on the internet where the browser isn't working or the internet's, the Wi-Fi's down. Um, you feel like you're, you know, there's always, there's always something. Technology can be great, but it can also be incredibly frustrating. So if all else fails, pick up the phone, call 877-444-6777. Talk to an actual person that would be more than happy to help you out. You may even get to talk to Maggie. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our, the district office closest to your entry point, we can help you. Recreation.gov, they can help you. Our permit manager that I gave that number before, 218-626-4314, she can help you. So you can call any one of the district offices or the supervisor's office in Duluth, and all those numbers are listed on our website. Call us. We'll help. We'll do the best we can because our job is to get you out into the woods, into the wilderness, into the forest, and just enjoy the outdoors. That's our goal. Outstanding. Well, uh, a lot of people are are thinking about summertime, thinking about their trip into the Boundary Waters. Some, their, you know, their 30th year going into the Boundary Waters. Others, their very first. So hopefully this overview, we've shared a lot of information over the last half an hour, and hopefully this can help people be better prepared for getting their permits and making that trip into the Boundary Waters. We're all waiting for those calls. And if you have any questions, anytime, up to go live and during go live, call the district offices, call recreation.gov. Let us help you. It's what we're there for. Wonderful. Maggie Whiting, Visitor Services Information Assistant with the Kawishawee Ranger District on the Superior National Forest. Thank you so much for joining us on Forest North. It was wonderful. And I just hope everyone is excited for the season as I am. And I'm just looking forward to um, many new faces coming into the Kushway Ranger Station and giving us a call. And we're just excited for the new season. Wonderful. Thanks so much for all you do. Welcome back to Forest North. I'm your host, Brett Ross, and I'm joined once again here on episode two by Steve Robertson, interpretation and education specialist with the Superior National Forest. Welcome back, Steve. Thanks for having me, Brett. We had a really entertaining segment in the last episode talking about uh, hibernation, some of the behaviors of uh, animals in the wintertime, particularly uh, frogsicles and the uh, and that hidden life of turtles in the wintertime. Yes, the secret life of turtles. <laughs> right, right. It's uh, soon to be a major motion picture. <laughs> it could be. It's certainly fascinating. <laughs> so I know this winter we've had uh, very much a, a relative lack of snow so far, and I've just been uh, appreciating the fact that we have snow on the ground. I spent a lot of time just over the last four or five days on the Superior National Forest, both here in the Ely area and near the North Shore of Lake Superior. And my favorite thing about wintertime is how the, the snow tells a story 
of the critters in the woods. And uh, I love seeing the tracks in the snow and trying to figure out what it was and what it was doing and if it's being chased or chasing something else. And oh, well that that's definitely one of the best things about winter as far as I'm concerned. Um, we do cross-country skiing. My wife and I go out fairly often during the winter. We were out a few times over the last couple of days, too, to take advantage of the snow. And honestly, I mean, skiing is fun, but I really like stopping and looking at tracks. Yeah. Uh, there's so much more going out going on out there that you just don't see during the summer right i mean if you're walking your dog along your dog knows it's there because they smell and it's always interesting the winter that you know i'll walk the dog and i can actually see what he's smelling it's like oh he is smelling those tracks there that i couldn't see in the summer but in the winter you see snowshoe hair tracks you see pine martin tracks you can see how they interact with each other and and yeah it's a real story and it's all spread out for people to look at in the snow so one live action scene that played out in front of me uh, by the North Shore, uh, I was skiing through untracked country on a, a ski trail, but it was untracked. And so, you know, six to eight inches of snow. So it was a bit of a slog. And then on a ridge, sort of the highest point of the trail that I was on, the wind off the lake was coming perpendicular across the trail. And so it was creating these drifts that the best way I can describe is they look like uh, speed bumps. Sure. And so these very smooth, rounded couple foot high snow drifts that went uh, the full width of the trail. And as I was noticing, you know, the smoothness of these speed bumps, I had just noticed a little ripple in the snow. And as soon as I noticed it, a roughed grouse just exploded out from under the snow. And I didn't realize that they'll actually bury themselves completely in the snow. Yeah, they they do. That's one of the ways that they survive cold weather. Um, They will dive into the snow in a loose snow drift and bury themselves underneath there and stay warm during the night. One of the troubles they have occasionally, not with this past snow, but if you end up then with an ice glaze over the top of the snow, they can actually get trapped under there and die. Oh, man. That that they can't get out again. But under ordinary circumstances, they obviously get out just fine, and it's, it's a good place to hide as well as to stay warm. I was really impressed and it just about gave me a heart attack but it was such a cool thing to see and uh, they do they seem like such a a fragile little chicken-like critter and so to see them surviving at you know 15 below with the wind chill uh, it was I I love the ingenuity of it yeah you'd think their feet get cold but all birds have a countercurrent in their bloodstream so that the blood going down to the feet runs alongside the blood coming back up from the feet so it cools down the blood before it goes down into their feet and then it warms the blood back up before it comes into the body again so they run with their feet at a much lower temperature than their body okay which when you look at them they don't have a lot of feathers and stuff on their feet as a general rule so they're really prone to frostbite but by doing that they can maintain their body temperature better and they don't lose all their heat through their feet it's pretty fascinating yeah Talking about birds, this past December, I was noticing a lot more hawks than I typically see in December. I don't recall ever really seeing hawks this far north in December, and I, I believe it was a rough-legged hawk yep. um, that I saw a, uh, saw a few different ones of them. So that, as I understand it, is primarily related to our lack of snow cover and the, and the milder temperatures. Yeah, and uh, I, I would have guessed rough-legged hawk if you hadn't said so. Um, rough-leggeds are 
are a northern species. They're rough-legged because they, in fact, do have feathers going all the way down onto their feet to keep themselves warm. But they normally go farther south than this during the winter. Uh, I remember when we were living down in Wisconsin that you could see a rough-legged on almost every farmer's field. There'd be a tree in the middle of the field and there'd be a hawk on it. So they go a little bit farther south than here, generally speaking. And what they're really driven by is is a lack of food. Mm-hmm. The food is still up here. They're going to be eating small mammals, mice and voles and what have you. But the food normally is hidden underneath four feet of snow. And, sure. and a hawk just has no way to find those critters down underneath the snow. Right. So without snow, they can still see the critters running around. Um, in fact, there's not any brush on the ground. There isn't, isn't anything growing down there. So it's really easy for them to see stuff. So as far as the rough legs were concerned, it was a really good winter for them. They didn't have to fly far south. They had abundant food. They're doing good. Small mammals, not so great for them. Uh, A little bit harder for them to get along. And then normally the the bird of prey that you do see up here in the winter are owls. Mm -hmm. And owls can manage because they're not using their vision to find their food as much as they're using their hearing. Right. So they can still hear the small mammals underneath the snow and they can find things by hearing them and they don't care if the snow is there or not. So they're able to stay here throughout the winter and still be able to find a meal under the snow. Is that true of all the species of owls that we have in the region? As far as you know, as far as I know, I think that's pretty true. If you look at an owl's face, there are really distinctive features, that big facial disc, they call it, that's mm-hmm. the big circles around their eyes. Yep. If you plucked an owl and you, you plucked all of its really loose, soft feathers out, you'd find out that those are two parabolic earphones, basically, or oh, wow. microphones. That, sure. that they're two dishes that are faced forwards that are connected to the ear on one side and pointed forwards on the other side. So they have ears as big as their head, basically. Wow. They're also kind of odd that their wiring is different from most animals. Um, the way our ears connect to our brain, it goes along the scale, basically, just like a piano. Mm. Our eyes map out things in three dimensions on our brain. With an owl, their ears map out things in three dimensions on their brain. So they're literally seeing locations in a sense. The same way you visualize things with your eyes, they're able to see where things are with their ears. If that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. it really is. It would be a totally different way of perceiving the world if you could see it like an owl hears it. Going back to the point about the snow telling the story of what's going on in the woods, every once in a while in the wintertime, you'll see signs of uh, basically feather marks in Mm -hmm. the snow where it sure looks like an owl had come down and snatched something right up out of the snow. Yep, and that's exactly what they're doing. If you see slow motion photography or a, a still picture of an owl when it goes down into the snow, they are able to stretch their legs out way farther than you think they can. Their body is an awful lot of feathers and not a lot of body in there. So they have their talons and their feet stretched out in front of them, their wings kind of held up behind their back, and then they just go down with their feet and nail stuff, sometimes a couple of a foot or so below the snow line. Wow. So will they actually get a good portion of their body into the snow then to do that, or is it mostly legs? Mostly legs wow. and, and lower portion of the body, but a lot of it's leg. 
once in a while you'll see a picture that's of what an owl's skeleton looks like. And if you, right. if you look at it, they, they've got a lot more leg than it looks like when you just see an owl sitting there. Wow. Yeah. And they look a lot bigger than they are. I had an incident years ago with our local radio station here in town. It was a little, I believe it was a short-eared owl that likely hit one of the guy wires on the tower. And so it was on the ground, obviously couldn't fly. So I called up the vet clinic who then called up the uh, raptor center. And there was a whole process of trying to rescue this bird. And so they said, you know, if you can put some gloves on, pick it up, put it in a box. So I was a little nervous at first because they're kind of intimidating. You know, even though it was a very small little owl, they're kind of intimidating. But then picking it up, it was almost like a a balloon with feathers. There's virtually nothing to it. I was just amazed at how little weight there was to the body of these owls. Yep. And, And of course, that's another way that they are able to be up here in the winter is they've got great insulation because right. they do have all of those feathers. And obviously we steal that idea in our down coats and For sure. down sleeping bags and such. But feathers are great insulation and a big fluffy owl does really well up here in the winter. For sure. Well, and that's one of the things that you learn spending time in the woods in the winter time here is just that. If, if, you, if you're going to be out and you want to enjoy it, you've got to have the right gear on. You've got to be wearing the right layers. It's, it's so worth it to have the right gear to be able to be out in the cold temperatures like we've had, especially the last few days here, kind of the coldest days of uh, of the winter so far. Learning those lessons from these animals that adapt to living in these cold conditions can really help us to be out and really make the most of wintertime. Oh, for sure. And uh, it, it really pays to have good clothes on and then suit your clothing to whatever you're doing. If you're out there recreating and you're skiing and stuff... Uh, it's 10 degrees out. I am not wearing all that much no. as far as coats are concerned because you end up just sweating like crazy if you do. On the other hand, if you're doing bird watching and you're standing in one spot, you're going to have three layers of down coats and your yeah. and your snow bibs and everything else on and, and still be possibly cold. And so you really have to toe warmers it. tucked into every yes. <laughs> place you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think that... Uh, Speaking of owls, the other thing that's interesting with them right now is since they are up here and they do have food, they're getting head start on almost all the other birds by laying eggs. Um, They're starting to nest this time of year in January. Interesting. And they're good ones at the moment. You can oftentimes get them to respond to hooting because they are... They are setting up territories and starting to claim space, and so you can hoot back and forth, and they will hoot back at you. Sure. In a little while, when they're more on eggs and going into having chicks, they they hoot less because they're actually trying to conceal themselves. They don't want things to find their nest. But right now, if you go out in the woods and and try hooting like an owl, you you can get response fairly easily. So what time of year, then, do the eggs typically hatch? Boy, I wish you hadn't asked me that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't recall what their incubation time is. Um, I want to say somewhere around like a month and a half, but I'm not really sure. Regardless, it's basically winter time when when young owls are hatching. Yeah, yeah. Which is fascinating to think of, you know, giving birth to a tiny, helpless little animal (laughs) in the winter time. Yeah, and of course the young ones, they aren't. They don't have a full set of feathers on them yet or anything, so they're really laying on mom or dad to be sitting on them to keep them warm. Owls do work together as a team. They're not one of the ones where the dad abandons the mom to the nest. Um, So he'll be bringing food in. She'll be sitting on the nest because they really do have to keep the young warm. Sure. 
Ravens also start to nest not quite as early as owls do, I imagine, but definitely wintertime, the uh, ravens will start to nest. Yep. And for much the same reasons, they still have food up here. Mm-hmm. They, they can find things to eat. And so they might as well get things started early. Uh, both of them also have large young so that you're looking at a little bit more time before they fledge and a little bit more time for training and everything before they leave home. Mm-hmm. So it, it's good to get started if you can. Yeah. If you remember from last year, I think it was that the DNR's Eagle Cam um, nest crashed to the ground because it was overloaded with snow. Right, right. So eagles are another one that are going to be nesting not now, because unlike the owls and the ravens, their food supply isn't up here yet. Well, it still is. It's underneath ice. Yeah, uh, eagles, primarily fish. For eagles eat fish, yep. yep. So, so long as the, the lakes are iced over, the eagles aren't going to be up here. Um, but down farther south, they're going to be starting to nest as soon as they're able to get into places where they can go fishing. Sure. You mentioned uh, with ravens, as far as their source of food goes, is that primarily like wolf kills, things like that? Is that one of their main sources of food? Ravens and and crows are great opportunistic feeders, as in they will eat whatever is available. (laughs) I mean, obviously, um, they're just as happy at a dumpster sometime as they are at a wolf kill. Uh, They certainly have no qualms against eating roadside carrion along the way. Um, They'll grab small animals if they can. Uh, They're going to... Well, not right now, but they would go for nestlings, um, raid robin's nests and stuff like that much later on in the spring when they're nesting. Okay. So they're going to get whatever they can scrounge. They they're, they don't care too much what they eat. They're a lot like some of my friends, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think anybody who's uh, left the lid off of their trash can or left some bags of trash in the back of a pickup truck can attest to the fact that it doesn't take them long to find out that there's something to eat there. No, and they are one of the more incredibly smart birds. Right. Uh, they've really found out a lot of interesting things about ravens. They, they came up with a, a language trick just recently that they thought only humans could really do, and they figured out ravens actually do that as well. Really? Uh, it's kind of hard to describe exactly what it is, but they're, but they're using language in a sense similar to the way that people do, which is pretty crazy. Uh, They can count to five. If you're doing raven studies, they found out you have to have at least like six observers go into the blind and five leave before the raven doesn't know there's somebody left in the blind. No kidding. If you have five people go in and four go out, the raven will look at you like, (laughs) hey, there's somebody still in there. (laughs) That is wild. Uh, what an amazing bird! Yeah, they're 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 very smart. They're uh, really, I think they're they're a cool thing to have up in the Northwoods. They're um, they're just a a fun bird to have around. I think. Well, and the number of vocalizations that they have. I was told by a, a wildlife photographer once that he was able to be in proximity of carrion and basically kind of take a nap until he heard a certain sound from the ravens that they only made when wolves were around. And so he knew when the wolves were coming by that very particular sound that the ravens made. That that makes sense. I mean, they're going to be trying to communicate about things like that. Um, I also like the fact that they play. Right. There's a lot of things that they've recorded for ravens sitting on 
sitting on telephone wires and then they loosen up so that they do like spins around the wire with yeah. their with their legs and apparently just are doing things for fun or or sliding down hills on their backs in the snow that they will go tobogganing i watched them i actually filmed uh, a group of ravens on the roof of my garage there was some moss on top of the garage and they had plucked a chunk of moss off of the the peak of the garage and one of them would drop the moss so it rolled down the edge of the garage and the other one would swoop down and pick it up before it rolled off of the garage. <laughs> I watched them do this over and over and over again and there's no other explanation for it than that they're just playing, just yep. having fun amusing themselves. What is that for kids? Annie eye over or something? I think it is. It's so great to be able to experience the, the wildlife that we have here in such a unique biosphere that we have here on the Superior National Forest. Um, we talked a little bit on the previous episode about bats. Yeah, bats this time of year, they should be hibernating. Mm -hmm. um, depending on the species, they hibernate in different parts of the cave. Uh, some of the ones like uh, little brown bats and tricolored bats, they're going to be pretty deep inside of a cave system where the, the temperature really stays constant. Mm -hmm. Big brown bats tend to hibernate at the mouths of the cave where it's a whole lot colder. And because of that, they're the bat which is oftentimes found in people's attics during the winter. Okay. Uh, it, they're one which tolerates colder temperatures that they might be in your attic. And they, for some reason, just don't care if the temperature goes up and down as much as the little browns do. So one trouble with that is that they will occasionally rouse up thinking that it is springtime because it's warm. And rather than escaping through a hole or checking out the world outside and going, ah, it is too cold out, they will go into your house instead. And then it's nice and warm, but there aren't that many bugs to eat and there right. are people who are annoyed by them. And it's, it's not a very good decision on their part. Um, but they'll get into houses and be flying around in people's houses during the winter. And that's nothing to be, you know, concerned about as in, I know a lot of people are really scared about bats that they might have rabies, mm -hmm. but, but that's based on a relatively poor study that, that was done at one time. Um, most bats, if they're active, they don't have rabies. You don't have to worry about that as much as you do about getting the bat to someplace safe where it can actually spend the winter. If you release it outside again, it might be too cold for it. We recommend that you try to capture it with something like a large blanket mm -hmm. so that you basically have a really big catcher's mitt. Mm -hmm. And you can oftentimes throw a blanket over a flying bat, sort of gather it up. Blankets are thick enough. It's not going to be able to bite through that or anything and hurt you. And then as you did with the, with the owl, uh, find a, wildlife rehab place that'll be able to take it. Um, oftentimes they have to be overwintered um, in somebody's refrigerator or whatever, and you can't do that at home, and then they'll be released in the spring. And it's wise to do that, as you mentioned, of course, because it's not a huge threat to people. They're not uh, a common carrier of rabies unless they're visibly sick or visibly right. not, not active. But also because the just the existence of bats in general seems to be fragile. It is, uh, particularly the hibernating ones. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that are getting the white nose syndrome. Right. And their populations have really plummeted 
and they're getting so that there's few enough of them that it's hard to study them. There's a couple that are of special concern, possibly going on the endangered species list where 10 years ago they were one of the most common mammals in Minnesota. So wow. it's an amazing drop in population. And they're such wonderful parts of the ecosystem because they eat mosquitoes. Oh, um, bless them. <laughs> and, and they eat all sorts of agricultural pests too. And we tend to focus on mosquitoes up here, but there's estimates about the n amount of money they save agriculture by eating agricultural pests. It, it's an incredible amount. Sure. So there's actual economic reasons why it pays to have bats out there in the world. Yeah, you know, as much as they have this bad reputation and they've been given this sort of sinister vampire-ish sort of reputation, like you said, they're such a valuable part of the ecosystem. And every time I see bats, especially in the summertime when the mosquitoes are bad, I'm like, thank you for being here. Thank you for your hard work. Keep at it. <laughs> yep. But none of them should be flying around right now. Right. And uh, hopefully they're either asleep or they've gone down to sunnier climes and are being... Uh, migratory snowflake type bats going south for the winter. Yeah. So good things to keep in mind if you do uh, happen to have a, a bat that's supposed to be hibernating and it happens to be flying around your house, uh, some some good pieces of information on, on being able to capture it and, and help keep it alive, help give it a chance to come back out in the summertime and eat some mosquitoes. Yep. You know, circling back to talking about tracks that you see while skiing, mm -hmm. The thing I saw an awful lot of this last time were snowshoe hair tracks. Yeah. And that's always good because I don't see snowshoe hairs that often. They're, they're pretty good at hiding themselves, mm -hmm. particularly in the winter when they're white against white snow. And it has set me thinking this winter with less snow that they were really having a rough time of it earlier. Oh, I felt so bad for them. I saw a bunch of them in December only only because they stood out. <laughs> There's such a stark contrast between these uh, these white snowshoe hair that they adapt to the winter, but winter didn't adapt to them so, so quickly this year. Right. They might as well have targets painted right. on their backs for, for those um, rough-legged hawks that, that you were seeing earlier. Right. And that's got to be hard. I mean... It, I don't know. Way back in college, we had one professor who said that, uh, you know, rabbits were born to die. Um, <laughs> they are sort of nature's food source some of the time. Sure, yeah. But they at least need a fighting chance. And the snowshoe hares just did not have it at the beginning part of this year because they changed to white. Their change of, of color is based more on day length than anything else. Yeah. So even if there's no snow, they're going to change to white regardless. Yeah, and it's such an incredible adaptation that they uh, that they'll change the color of their fur to match their environment in the wintertime and just kind of a cruel joke this year. It was. And then on the opposite side of the, the coin, ermine, uh, the little least weasels <laughs> that are, you know, a lovely tan color in the in the summer and then change to pretty white in the winter you know their camouflage is blown too you know, it's <laughs> right, pretty right. hard to sneak up on things and be a predator if, if you're white and everything else in the world is brown no so. kidding no kidding lots of snowshoe hare tracks and i know in previous years where the the population of snowshoe hare seems to really skyrocket we see things sort of do that in conjunction with that like the population of lynx that we'll see in this area yep Lynx and snowshoe hare is the classic predator-prey relationship. Mm -hmm. If you graph their populations, they track one another really well. If you get more snowshoe hare, you get more lynx. As snowshoe hare drops, the lynx population drops. 
And it'll be interesting to see what happens this year because suddenly there was this really abundant food supply in a sense because all of the hair were visible. Maybe that's going to drop the snowshoe hair population and we'll see whether or not it crashes and whether lynx population might follow that. Despite the fact that snowshoe hair were easy to see, it might not have been a great year for lynx either. Um, lynx are also adapted for snow. They don't change color, but they have the big, wide snowshoe kind of feet that allow them to run on top of snow. And that lets them outcompete things like bobcat. Yeah. And when there's not snow on the ground, bobcats can possibly get things faster than the lynx can. Interesting. So it might have been hard for lynx, too, to not have a lot of snow, even though there were a lot of snowshoe care. Or maybe those two things balanced things out, so it was just kind of an average year for lynx. Um, one of the tricks with biology is you never have just one variable change. Uh, everything always changes all the time. <laughs> right. It's really hard to predict, but that's also kind of the fun part about it too. Yeah. It's so great to see cats in the ecosystem and that balance of, uh, you know, the, the increase in the snowshoe hair shows an increase in the, in the lynx and the bobcats. And, um, this past summer I saw two bobcats, uh, at two different times. And it's the first time in 26 years of living up here that I actually saw a bobcat in the wild. They're such elusive critters. They are. They are. I, I think I've seen more lynx up here than bobcat. In fact, for sure I have. Uh, you don't see them that often. They're actually, I think, Minnesota's most populous cat species. Wow. And they're even found down in the Twin Cities. Uh, probably one that I remember seeing the most was when I was walking along a railroad right away down in the middle of St. Paul, and there was a bobcat that was hunting along that same railroad right away. So they get along okay with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so long as there's food and there's some open space for them to be in, they're able to deal with that. And so they're found all the way from... Mm, Canadian border, a little bit north of the air, all the way on down towards Mexico, and pretty much the United States is is just the center of bobcat range. So they do well with exactly the same kind of climate, I guess, that people do, sure. and the same kind of lifestyle. That's great. Such an exciting world of nature that we have right outside our back door here on the Superior yep. National Forest. And again, just a, a wonderful time of year to be out and just see the, the stories that the snow has to tell. Yep. I think this is a good time to be out and about. And it is fun to see all of those tracks, whether you're skiing by them or, you know, snowmobiling, slow down once in a while enough so you can see what you're going by. Or if you're just hiking or snowshoeing, it, it's a good time of year to be outside despite it being minus seven at the moment. Right. We're all used to it. We're Minnesotans, right? That's right. It's Minnesota. It's northeastern Minnesota in January. uh, We we come to expect this, so we're finally getting to a little more seasonable weather conditions, and and, uh, I'm not one to complain about that. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Steve Robertson, Interpretation and Education Specialist with the Superior National Forest. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brett. Thank you for listening to Forest North. And a big thank you to Steve Robertson for joining us once again to talk about the landscape and wildlife here on the Superior National Forest. A big thanks to Maggie Whiting for giving us the run-through on Go Live Day for your Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Permits for 2024. That happens on Wednesday, January 31st. 
Forest North is created by the Ely Tourism Bureau in partnership with the USDA Forest Service, Superior National Forest. Find out more about the Superior National Forest at fs.usda.gov superior. Follow the Ely Tourism Bureau on social media at visitelymn at ely.org and email your questions or comments to tourism at ely.org. Thanks again for listening. I'm Brett Ross. Tune in next time to Forest North. Forest North.